Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to investigate the Scriptures with me as we continue to probe Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We've been stressing in this series of programs focusing on the Kingdom that Jesus was a first-century Jew, and his teaching must be understood in that environment and against that background. Jesus' teaching and his words and his gospel preaching were based upon the bedrock-solid foundation of what we call the Old Testament, actually the Hebrew Bible, that 77% of our Bible which is often neglected. It's a fatal mistake of Bible study to think that we can understand the New Testament if we've not grasped the foundational principles of the Old. You see, the gospel itself was preached to Abraham. The gospel as Jesus brought it was not entirely new. It was a message which had already been proclaimed and revealed by God the Father to Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 8 states that fact specifically. Galatians 3 8 says that God preached to Abraham the gospel. He preached it beforehand to Abraham. Jesus came, according to Romans chapter 15, to confirm the promises made to the fathers. You see, the gospel preaching of Jesus then is a confirmation, a reaffirmation of pre-existing promises, those oath-bound covenant promises made between God and Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the faithful of the Old Testament period. And the promise to Abraham was that he would have a distinguished seed. That seed, according to Galatians chapter 3, turned out to be the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ. But there was another major element in the promises made by God to Abraham, that gospel that was preached in advance. The other great element in the promise was the promise of the land, the territory, the land of Canaan, and the promise of that gift of land forever was guaranteed both to Abraham permanently and in perpetuity as well as to his descendants. You see, Abraham died without receiving those promises. That's a most important fact if we're going to grasp the ongoing drama of the biblical story being worked out in the pages of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 13 and again in verse 39 state with absolute clarity that the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac and Jacob died in faith without having received the great promises, the promise of the land, that is. Now, certainly they'd never seen Jesus either. They never personally knew the promised seed, but neither did they inherit the land. They died in faith, not having received that great promise of the land. And that's why, according to the author of the book written to the Hebrews, they are destined to rise again in resurrection so that with us they may indeed receive the great promise of the land. And the promise of the land is none other than the promise of the kingdom of God. Well, how can that be? The promise starts out by being the promise of the land of Canaan. But that land of Canaan, you see, is to be the headquarters of the future kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will indeed be centered in Jerusalem, where its legal king, the returned Messiah, will officiate with his faithful. But that kingdom will have effects across the globe. There will be an era of unparalleled peace and prosperity. The lion will lie down with the lamb. The poisonous snakes will become harmless and so on. 
Even nature itself will reflect the glory of that great era of peace and security which is going to prevail across the earth when the Messiah returns to take charge of world affairs. Present systems of government are not going to last forever. The kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of God and of his Messiah. You'll read about that wonderful time coming in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. It will be at that last trumpet that the kingdoms of this world will change hands. All government at that future time will be centered in a single headquarters in Jerusalem. The Messiah will return to take up his position on the throne of David, as was promised to him by Gabriel when Gabriel spoke these words to Mary in Luke 1, verse 32. He's going to be great, Gabriel said to Mary, and the Lord God is going to give him the throne of his father David, and he's going to rule over the people of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the great Davidic messianic kingdom promised by the prophets of the Old Testament, which has not yet appeared on this earth, but is destined to appear in manifested glory at the second coming of Jesus. Jesus, you see, is not coming back to pay the earth a second visit and then disappear again. He's coming back to stay. It's the second coming of Jesus, which the Bible describes, or rather the coming in glory in the future, but that means his coming back to the earth to reside in the earth and to establish the kingdom of God, that great kingdom of peace promised by the prophets of the Old Testament. The gospel of the kingdom alerts you to that great fact of the future. It lets you in on the secret of what God is doing by way of his grand design and his great plan to recover rebel earth from the clutches of the devil. The Messiah is the one who's going to overcome Satan finally. Satan is going to be arrested, incarcerated, so that, as we read in Revelation 20, he can no longer deceive the world. It's the seductive activity of the devil which is confusing our world and often our churches. It's intellectual seduction that the devil works at as he twists our minds and gears them towards error rather than truth. He makes us his slaves. We're supposed to be following the teaching of Jesus and loving the truth. Now, Jesus is the only center and source of truth. Jesus is the truth, and so is everything that he taught and said. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul gave these extraordinary warnings. Because they did not receive the love of the truth, they're going to perish. He warned then that only those who seek and embrace truth and live it out are destined to inherit the kingdom of God when Jesus returns. Paul there lays the heaviest emphasis on truth versus error. It does matter what we believe. We are bound as Christians to search the Scriptures daily, as they did in Acts 17 verse 11, to see if what we're hearing is true. And once we establish the truth of anything we hear taught, then we're to embrace it as truth and to develop a passion for truth. It's the love of the truth that Paul stressed in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10 not just a casual attitude towards truth, but an embracing of truth, a loving of truth, which of course is the equivalent of loving Jesus, who himself spoke the truth and is the truth. And the great truth of God's revealed plan is that it's all summed up in the gospel message of the kingdom. 
It was by faith that Abraham believed in that message of the kingdom of God when he agreed with and embraced in faith God's promise of the land. The land promised to Abraham in the Old Testament becomes the promise of the earth and the kingdom in the new. Matthew 5, 5 simply reaffirms the gospel promise of the land to Abraham. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. They're going to have the earth as their inheritance. Now it was by faith that Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place or a land which he was to receive for an inheritance. That's Hebrews 11, verse 8. You see, Abraham did not go in blind faith. He went based on the promise made by God. Just as Noah was warned by God about things not seen, he prepared an ark to save his family. So in the same way, Abraham believed what God intended to do. He took God at his word and acted in faith. That's the essence of Christian belief. Abraham went out to a place which he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, but by faith he lived as an alien. Hebrews 11 verse 9 states, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the promise. That's to say the land promised to him in perpetuity. And then Hebrews 11 verse 9 states that Abraham lived in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. We need to notice here carefully that Abraham went to the promised land. He went to the place which he was later to receive as an inheritance. He never, however, received it during his lifetime. This, of course, sets up the biblical tension, the excitement of the biblical story. We're waiting to see how can God fulfill his promise of the land in perpetuity to Abraham. Abraham lived in that land of the promise as a spiritual tourist, as a green card man, if you like, as a resident alien. He didn't own the land, but God promised him that he would one day own the land with Isaac and Jacob and all the faithful and with Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was the promised seed, the recipient of the great land promise along with Abraham. Now the tension of the biblical story will be resolved in this way. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob will come back from the sleep of death by a resurrection in order precisely that they can inherit the great promise made to them by God. That promise is permanent residence in the kingdom of God, the promised land, the land of Canaan, which is a piece of real estate, if you like, located on this planet. In the future, this earth will be renewed and restored, but the land of Canaan will still be there. Jerusalem will still be a city. In fact, the nations of Egypt and Assyria are mentioned specifically in Isaiah 19 as being converted nations at that time. There's coming a time when the systems of this world will be radically altered, present religions will be abolished and replaced by one worldwide religion under the supervision of Jesus Christ who will be ruling in Jerusalem, sitting on the throne of David, as was promised by Gabriel when he spoke those extraordinary words to Mary in Luke 1, verse 32. You see, the Bible story from cover to cover is a royal story it's about the dynasty promised to David and about the land promised to Abraham. Jesus was the descendant of David, the heir to the Davidic throne. Jesus is presently not sitting on the throne of David. 
The throne of David, I must tell you, has not been moved to heaven, as some think. That would be as problematic as saying that the throne of England is now in Russia. The throne of David has one location, and it's Jerusalem on this earth. That's where the faithful are going to dwell, and that's where Jesus himself will be. We're going to be with Jesus when he returns. He will be on the earth. We will be on the earth ruling with him. The faithful of all the nations are going to be gathered into one royal group, and they're going to reign as kings upon the earth. Now that reign of the saints with Messiah on the earth is what Jesus called the kingdom of God. He was looking forward to that future time when God will take charge of the earth, using as his agents and his instruments the Messiah, his Son, and the faithful of all the ages. And so you see, the kingdom of God idea, which Jesus promoted in his gospel, has its roots deep in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. God had promised from the beginning to grant the land to Abraham in perpetuity. That land promise becomes the promise of the kingdom in the teaching of Jesus. And so the two sections of our Bible, the 77% of the Old Testament and the New Testament, are united by a single theme. The golden thread of the promise of the kingdom runs from one end of the Bible to the other, and that kingdom is the kingdom for which we're commanded to pray, Thy kingdom come. It's the time when the kingdom will be restored to Israel, as we read in Acts 1, verse 6. We invite you to request from us our free literature on the kingdom of God, also our booklet on what happens when we die. Or you may like to request a tape of this program or others in the series you've been listening to. Join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.